Well, good morning, fellowship. How's everyone doing today? I greeted a familiar face after the first service, and I said, how's your summer break been? And he looked at me, and he kind of raised an eyebrow, and he said, who came up with the term summer break? And I think that's very accurate. Um, I'm just looking at my own experience. We've quickly gone from this thing to that thing to this thing, and now this, and now this camp, and I don't know. I think for our children who are out of school, for some of them it might feel like a break, but wow, it does feel like summer, well, I don't know what the right term is, summer shuffle, summer scuttle, summer chaos, I'm not sure what it is, but it doesn't feel like summer break, does it? At least not in my experience. It feels like we're moving very quickly right now. Um, my name is Mike, and uh, I'm a member at Fellowship. We, my wife and I and my beautiful daughters attend over at the Brentwood campus on Sunday mornings. We've been coming here since 2002. I had a couple in the front row right here in the last service that I was in discovery class with back in August of 2002. It was fun to, to see the Huners here. That was cool. Um, but I'm a, a member here. I've been coming for a long time, and I'm a, an addition to the elder team as of last year. And I got a phone call uh, a little while back where uh, Rob Sweet has said, Mike, we're doing a, a summer series on the Psalms. That's alliteration, I think. Summer series in the Psalms. And he said, we would love for you to participate if you're available. I said, that sounds great. And I've been gone for a little bit of the summer, but I've been able to listen to the different speakers we've had uh, catching their sermons online. And I don't know about you, but I've really enjoyed it. It's been fun to hear from some, uh, some people that we wouldn't normally get to hear from. Uh, you heard from Bobby Brown, uh, a youth pastor here. Heard from Jeff Helton uh, a week or two ago. Uh, before that, uh, I think you guys also heard from Rubel Shelley. Um, and I think he was in either late May or early June. We got to hear from him. And then a week or two after I'm here, you're going to hear from Bill Wellens. So kind of a nice chance over the summer for us to give our, our starters, for lack of a better word, a break, right? Rob and Lloyd get to enjoy a little bit of time with their families. Um, Rob Sweet was sitting in like the fourth row over here in the first service. And I said, dude, you got to consume church this morning as opposed to provide church. I said, out of 52 weeks, how, how often does that happen? He said, once. I'm like, I got to be here for that today? He's like, yep. And I said, be honest with me. How, how often in the service were you like being critical of the light? I think, oh, we got to do this in the service. Or were you able to actually just sit back and enjoy it? He's like, we're here as a family. It was awesome. So it's cool. I like when our pastors get to recharge their batteries a little bit in the summertime and enjoy a little bit of a break as well. So that was cool. Um, this uh, series we're doing on the Psalms, let me tell you how the preparation went for all of us who were tapped on the shoulder and asked to contribute to this. Basically, we were told, pick a Psalm. Pick any Psalm that's uh, made a mark on your life. Choose a Psalm that's spoken to you or that you've connected with in some way and write a sermon on it. There was no really tight boundaries. There was no very finite passage. We had kind of full freedom to pick whatever. And I chose a Psalm uh, that is very personal to me because it has been helpful to me as I've sorted through a difficult part of my Christian journey. It was, uh, the first five verses of it were on the screen a little while ago. Uh, if you brought a Bible or you've got like an e-device, if you can open up to Psalm 32, we're gonna get there in just a little bit. Uh, by way of transfer in, I wanna sort of set the stage a little bit though, if that's okay. Um, I wanna be transparent and vulnerable with you this morning and very honest, because I think that's the tone of this psalm, and it wouldn't feel right if I was being anything less than very forthcoming uh, as I speak to you this morning. Um, I became a Christian when I was 21 years old. 
Uh, I heard the gospel when I was attending University of Calgary up in Western Canada. And I'm 45 now, so I've been a Christian for 24 years. Before becoming a believer, I had lived a fairly carnal life. I had done a lot of things in my life that I was embarrassed about or things I look back on now with, very frankly, a, a sense of shame, some of the things that I had done, some of the habits I had formed. And when I became a believer, not all of those bad habits died immediately. Uh, in fact, some of them would hang on for years and years and years, and I would struggle my way through those um, as, and feel the conflict of what it is to be a, a Christian, to be a believer in Christ, who's kind of living at odds with the faith that you profess, at least from uh, the way that you're living your life. And there's been times when I've walked through the back door of a church, and I've come in and I've sat down in the pews, and I've kind of felt like I didn't belong here. I felt like I was on, uh, I don't know, on soil or on land or in a room that I really shouldn't be in because I knew I was living a life that was contradictory to what the Lord would approve of. Uh, I was engaging in willful sin. And when you're living that way and you come into church, there's something that's kind of disquieting to the soul. And I wanna talk about that this morning in my own experience and through the lens of Psalm 32. Because what we're gonna find as we get into the text is that if you've ever experienced that, or if you're experiencing that emotion right now, that sense of disquiet in your heart, that lack of peace in your soul because of the way that you're living, you're gonna find in Psalm 32 this morning that you're not alone. Um, there's a guy who wrote a lot of the Psalms. His name is David. He comes across the Psalms a lot. He authored most of them. And what we're gonna find in Psalm 32 is that this is a Psalm about shame and about guilt. David is a man who is well acquainted with those emotions. As most of you know, David uh, committed adultery with a married woman. Uh, he had a, uh, an affair with a woman named Bathsheba, and this little tryst resulted in a pregnancy. And when David found that Bathsheba was with child, he tried to cover up the evidence, so to speak, by ordering the death of her husband. So yeah, this man who is after God's own heart, this ambassador, David, that is a role model for many, we can safely conclude that this man was well acquainted with guilt and with shame and with embarrassment. This man did not always live well. And we can look at this psalm as a lens of how he processed through this. And what you're gonna find is that this psalm will not only articulate the emotions of shame and guilt and embarrassment, but we're gonna see that David also found the forgiveness and the love and the acceptance that's found on the other side of these first emotions when he made amends with God. And he's gonna communicate all this to us in Psalm 32 today, which for me is kind of a, an example of how good our lives could be. Now, before we dive into the text, I'm gonna to, to define one word for you. And it's a word that we see all over our Bible. Uh, you can't read very far in New or Old Testament without finding this word. I don't think many of us know what this word means though. The word is blessed, blessed. Some people say blessed, but the word is blessed. You're gonna see it all throughout the Bible. God wants his kids to be blessed. But what does blessed mean? Well, I was uh, coming home from Lake Tahoe about 10 days ago. I was working on my sermon in the car while my wife was driving, and I Googled it. What does blessed mean? And I was surprised by what I found. Blessed translated simply means happy. And you're going, 
Mike, that sounds a little too shallow. I mean, shouldn't there be some four-syllable Hebrew word to come out from the word blessed? No, in this case, there's no need to overcomplicate it. To be blessed, to be truly blessed, is to be happy, deeply happy. But there's a nuance to the word. It didn't just say happy, period. It was like happy dot, dot, dot. There is a nuance or a, a caveat to the understanding of the word. To be blessed is to be happy in such a way as to, that others look upon you with an amount of envy. Translation, they look at you and they want what you've got. To be blessed of God is to be happy and content and fulfilled in a way that people look at you and say, man, I wish I had some of that. That's the idea of blessed, right? And with that in mind, open to Psalm 32, chapter, verse one, if you could please. And it's gonna start with this. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sins are covered. Now, I love the word transgress, right? A transgress means to tear off or to break away, right? The Bible that we read, both New and Old Testament, it's got a pretty thorough prescription of righteous living. It shows us exactly how we are to live, exactly how we are to behave. But what do we do? We break away from those prescriptions. What's important to note in verse number one is it doesn't say, blessed is the man who has never broken off. It doesn't say that. Now, why does it not say that? Because none of us could relate to that. There is no one who has ever lived who has never broken off. Well, except for one, Jesus himself. It says, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sins are covered. That is the person who's blessed. Verse two, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The word deceit has the idea of dishonesty, uh, of not being fully truthful or completely forthcoming. Deceit implies that you're covering something up. Verse two says, blessed is the man in whose spirit there is no deceit. So blessed is the man who has laid his sins all out in the open, who hasn't hidden anything. Blessed is the man who can say with a clear conscience, all of my sins have been acknowledged. I've brought all my sins to bear, nothing is hidden. But on the flip side of this, we go to verse three. It says, or David says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. Before I talk about verses three and four, I wanna just explain Selah. I'm not sure, quite frankly, if any of your people who have taught on the Psalms before me have addressed Selah. So let me just take a moment and speak about this just for a second. Selah is actually a musical term. I think this will resonate well with the Nashville audience. Uh, we have to remember that a lot of these psalms were originally sung. These were delivered musically uh, when they were written. And Selah, the musical term Selah, simply implies take a break. Selah says, the thought has been completed. And before we move on to the next point, let's just dwell on this for a moment. Okay? Now, I don't know about you, but I feel like in my life, I could do for a little more Selah. I look at my schedule every day 
and I plan what I'm gonna do in the day and I feel like every, every little time slot is spoken for. I don't feel like I leave a lot of time in my life to take a moment, take a break and dwell on what I've learned and ponder it before moving on to the next thing. I think as a culture, as an American culture, we could do for a little more selah in our lives, that we dwell a little bit on what we've just learned, okay? Um, selah is saying, soak it in. Take a minute and process what you've heard. Meditate on it before moving on to the next point. Okay, so that's Selah. Now he says this at the end of verses three and verse four, saying, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. You guys, can you remember those times in your life when you have willfully rebelled against the Lord? when you committed intentional sin against the Lord and did so, it wasn't by accident. It wasn't, oh man, I can't believe I just did that. You willfully engaged in it and you kept doing so. If you're like me, and again, I'm not pointing a finger at you in this sermon, I'm reflecting back on me. If you're at all like me in this time when you lived in a way that was hateful to the Lord or you engaged in behaviors that were against what the Lord would have for you, if you're anything like me in that time, there's a tendency that creeps into your life. You tend to wanna kind of hide from God, right? Similar to Adam and Eve in the garden when they took the fruit, what was their first instinct when they heard the Lord in the garden they hid from him. There's something in all of us that tends to shy away from or avoid our authority figure in our life when we know we've done something wrong, when we know we've done something that we're ashamed of. We tend to hide. And I, when I was a, a parent of young children, I remember when my daughters were both around the age of two. By the way, whenever a pastor says or a teacher says those words and their kids are in the audience, they go like this in their chair because they know something's coming that's not gonna be good. Last week in Brentwood, this was, I looked right at my daughters when they said this. It was kind of a fun daddy moment. But when my kids were two years old, still in diapers, I knew it was time to potty train them when they would go behind the couch to soil their diaper. There was something in them that said, this isn't right, and I now know this isn't right, because there's that room over there with that strange white apparatus I see mommy and daddy using that, and that's what I'm supposed to do, but I'm not doing that, so I'm just gonna hide over here behind the couch and do my business in my diaper. I didn't teach them to be ashamed of going poo-poo in their diaper, but they experienced a sense of shame, and so they hid. Isn't that interesting? That's a knee-jerk reaction in all of us when we know we've done something wrong that offends our authority figure, okay? Um, when this happens in the life of a believer, Right? When you're willfully rebelling against God, there's something in you that says, man, I'm just gonna kind of keep my distance from God right now because I can't come to him. I can't acknowledge him. I can't address him without somehow calling out or addressing this issue. So he knows it's there. I know it's there, but I'm just gonna keep my distance right now because this feels uncomfortable. I think we've all been there. We've all been in that spot where we're apprehensive to come before the God that made us because we're, we're mindful of a sense of guilt or a sense of shame in our life, and we don't know how to deal with it. And what we learn in this text is it says, what happens to you in that situation? Well, to a follower of God, to one who, who is a follower of Jesus, your experience is very similar to David. He said, it felt like my bones were wasting away inside of me. 
It felt like your hand was heavy upon me and my strength was drained as in the heat of summer. For some of you in this room, you might be thinking, man, I remember two or three years ago when I wasn't walking with the Lord very well. I remember how that felt. I recall that distance that Mike's talking about. Some of you might be like, you know, I remember just this past Christmas, I did that thing I wasn't very proud of, and I remember how that affected my relationship with the Lord. I remember how that felt back about six months ago. Some of you are in here this morning, and you know that this is your present reality. You know that you're not walking right with the Lord right now. And for those of you in the room that are experiencing that, let me see if I understand you properly, because this was me when I walked in a room and I knew I wasn't living well. You tried to sing this morning in church, but the words didn't come out very easily, did they? Because you felt kind of like an imposter. You look around the room and you think you're probably fooling everybody else and you might very well be. You might have your spouse fooled or your best friend fooled because they don't see how you're living, right? You might fool your best friends. You might be fooling your children. You might even be fooling your fellowship group. And when someone walked in the room this morning and said to you, hey, how's it going today? You said, great, so that you could kind of throw them off your scent. You don't want to let them know that you're actually not doing very well inside, that you've got decay building up on your soul, that you don't have inner peace. You guys, every single week, people come into this room and fake it. Every single week. You know the sin that's separating you from God. You know what you've done that has offended your relationship with God that you're holding on to tightly. Some of you are dragging your sin like a ball and chain coming into church. This is about how mobile and agile you feel. But you haven't dealt with it. You haven't dealt with it. And it's a weight pressing on you, as David describes. For some of you, this is your reality today. And when that was me coming into a room like this in that time of my life, I was like, man, I hope the Lord doesn't return today. And if that's you, or if you've experienced that, you know as well as I do, that's about the worst feeling for a Christian because you do feel like a walking contradiction. Now, this gnawing feeling, this, this torment that David describes in verse four, you need to know it's actually a really good thing. In fact, as, I, as I've gotten older, as I've gotten a little more mature in my walk with Christ, I've actually started to pray for this feeling. I've asked the Lord to give it to me. And if this is your reality this morning, if you're living at odds with your faith, if you're at conflict with the God that made you because of your unconfessed sin, I need to tell you, I prayed for you this morning that you would feel the torment that David felt in this psalm. You can thank me later. Because if you're on this road, if you're living a lie, you're experiencing this lack of inner peace, you realize that this is... This is fracturing your relationship with Christ. And if you're hiding from the God that made you because of unconfessed sin, guys, I prayed this morning, not only that this would torment you, but I prayed you wouldn't be able to sleep tonight. I want you to feel tortured by this. Because if you're like I was then, you've got memories of blessedness. You remember what it was like to walk closely with the Lord. You remember what that relationship with that spiritual intimacy was like. And you're like, man, I remember, when I, I remember when I was so close with the Lord and we, I'd pray to him all the time. There was this sweetness, there was this fellowship. And then this thing happened. And now all that spiritual intimacy is gone. I know how I used to feel. I know how I, it used, I, how I used to experience the Lord. But I don't feel that way now. 
And when I come to church, I see other people experience it. I see the intimacy they have with God, but I don't have it anymore. And guys, I pray if that's your reality, I pray if that's you this morning, that you'd have a David moment. I pray that you'd experience the unrest that he had. He says in this Psalm, it felt like I was going to die. My bones were disintegrating inside of me. You need to know that if you are a believer in Christ, that that's actually the Holy Spirit doing that work within you. You see, when you prayed the sinner's prayer and you became a believer in Christ, the Holy Spirit literally physically entered you and took up residence in your soul. And when that happened, you became a slave to what's right. You can't live at odds against your Christian faith and not experience that unrest. You start to feel beaten internally. We have all felt it, I promise you that. And I don't think there's a worse feeling for a Christian than this guilt and this lack of inner peace. But then the psalm moves on to verse five. And we move from the despair and the pain to the resolution. In verse five, David says, then I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. The NASB says, you forgave the guilt of my sin. David says, I finally acknowledged it. I finally pulled it out into the open and I said, here it is. Now you saw it all along. God saw it all along, right? But David says, I finally opened my hand and acknowledged my sin before the Lord. And what does it say happened when he did that? Does it say God tortured David for a while? Does it say God made him pay dearly for it? Does it say God made me do penance? Go feed the orphan, go clothe the widow, go do this, go do this, go do this, and then maybe, just maybe I'll forgive you. Does it say that? Nope. It says, I confessed my sin and you forgave me, period. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We just need to confess them. Now, the confessing of your sin isn't easy sometimes, right? Because we're very mindful of the guilt that's keeping us out of the throne room of God, right? When David says in verse five, he says, I confessed and you forgave the guilt of my sin, remember it was the guilt that was keeping you away from God. Sometimes in our nature, we put off things that are hard to do. Anyone else do that besides me? We tend to avoid the things that are hard to do, especially when they involve relationships. I grew up in a house where my parents didn't exactly role model healthy conflict. I won't ask you to raise your hand because your parents might be in the room. But my guess is that some of you grew up in a house where you didn't see healthy conflict modeled for you. I certainly didn't. I watched parents yell at each other, followed by prolonged periods of silence. Nothing got dealt with. They just kind of built up and built up and built up. The way they addressed conflict was kind of like, well, let's just not deal with this. So I'm gonna lift up the rug and I'm just gonna sweep that conflict under the carpet. If I can't see it, maybe it'll go away. Maybe it'll, it'll just dissolve on its own right? Two weeks later, three weeks later, yeah, let's just brush that conflict under the rug. Let's just keep brushing that one. A month later, keep brushing that one. 
If your approach to resolving strain in relationships is by brushing things under the carpet, hoping they'll die a natural death, my question for you is this. How's that working for you? I saw how it worked in my parents' relationship. They're divorced now. And I see how this works in my relationship with the Lord. When I don't deal with a broken relationship with Jesus, I suffer. My relationship with God suffers. And from the vantage point of fellow struggler, guys, there's nothing in me this morning that's up here preaching at you because I got this solved. I come before you as a fellow struggler this morning with a little bit of advice on some things that have been helpful to me in my walk with Christ. If you're a note taker, I wanna give you two thoughts on this particular part of the psalm. And if you're a note taker, I would love for you to write these things down. Point of advice number one is this. Keep short accounts with God. Keep short accounts with God. What do I mean by that? I mean, make amends quickly. As soon as you have transgressed, right? As soon as you have offended or engaged in willful sin, address the issue with God immediately. Don't put off to tomorrow. Don't put off to next week. Don't put off to next month. Oh, I'll get to that. Just don't want to do it right now because I'm a little uncomfortable right now. No, jump in and do the hard thing now. The longer you put off relational repair, the more decay can come into the relationship. And if you've been on a, in a relationship with a loved one that you've put off healing, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Make amends quickly. I was trying to think of an analogy to drive this point home, and I came up with something that may or may not resonate with you, but it's part of my story, so I'm going to share it. Um, I did a bachelor's degree in physical education. I know you're all impressed. I was the kind of kid that wasn't good at anything in school except for gym class. My mom looked at me in about the 11th grade and said, okay, why don't you be a phys ed teacher? I said, huh. She said, you'll never be wealthy, but you'll get to play sports the rest of your life. And I said, that's actually a pretty good idea. So I went to university and I got myself a bachelor's degree in physical education. And I was taking a class on diving. And I know as soon as I say that, you're going, you took a class on diving. I took microbiology and you took diving? Yeah, sucks for you. I got to take a diving class in university, okay? <laughs> in my diving class that you're jealous of, I remember the instructor in the first week of class saying, no one gets out of the first week of class without going off the 10-meter platform. You will all go off the 10-meter platform after at the end of the first week. And I'm like, okay. From down there, you're like, I can do that. You get up there and two thoughts hit you. Number one thought is this. My head should never be this close to the rafters in a building this tall, ever. That's the first thought. The second thought is you get up close to the end of the platform and you're going, there's just no way. There is absolutely no way this is gonna happen. And the instructor way down there is shouting, okay, here's how you're gonna do it. There's only one way to do this for the first time. You're gonna do a running screamer. And you can appreciate what that is. He's saying, you gotta start back here and build up so much momentum that you can't stop and you just commit. Ah! And it literally is seconds, whack. And then you hope you're somewhat vertical when you make contact with the water, right? Um, if you're not vertical, it is memorable. Here's the point. Here's the point. Some of you need to do a running screamer with the Lord today because your feet have been on the edge and you've been looking over and it's gotten pretty hard to jump. The longer you're on that ledge on a 10 meter platform, the longer you're there staring over, looking down at the water, are you more likely or less likely to jump? 
you're less likely. There's an inverse correlation between the likelihood of jumping and the longer you stand considering the consequence. Some of you need to build up momentum today and do a running screamer with the Lord. Okay, so point number one is make amends quickly. Point number two is this. Don't just make amends quickly, make amends accurately. Guys, God saw your sin. He saw it happen. You know your sin. You know what you did. But sometimes confessing your sin to the Lord in plain language can be hard. There's a tendency in all of us to dress up the worst parts of us. Right? We're pretty good at putting a spin on things. We're pretty good at putting a spin on the truth. A question I would want you to ponder this morning is simply this. When you pray to God, when you approach him in your prayer, are you completely honest with him? Or do you, when you pray to God, do you try to make yourself look better than you are? You might think, well, that's a dumb question. No, it's not, because we do this with people. When you talk to your friends about your life, you, you tend to make yourself look at least a little bit better than you are, or make things look a bit better than they are. Do we do this with God as well? My friends, when you confess to the Lord in prayer, he wants authentic. He wants real. He doesn't want you to spice it up, sugar it up. Come at him plain, unvarnished, unguarded with the truth. For some of you, you're praying like this. Lord, I'm starting to feel a little bit of a disconnect with my life partner. When in reality, your prayer should be, Lord, my marriage sucks. And I'm feeling trapped and I'm worried this is not going to improve. For some of you, you've been praying, Lord, when I turn on the power button on my computer, I feel just a hint of uh, distraction uh, in my thought life because of things I've done in the past. When in reality, your prayer should be, Lord, as soon as I power up my laptop, it feels like an all-out war to avoid that site on the internet that I've been to too many times that it feels as calling my name. For some of you, your prayer, you've been praying, yeah, Lord, I feel like I've put too high a value on the pursuit of money. When in reality, your prayer should be, Lord, if I'm completely honest, my love of money feels like it's greater than my love of you right now. And I'm not proud of that. In fact, I'm ashamed of that. But this is me being real. This is me not trying to sugarcoat my reality. This is me being as honest as I can be. Lord, I'm ashamed to call it what it is, but I think that my love of money is greater than my love for you right now. I'm sorry, but I'm trying to be truthful. Guys, don't marinate your confessions. Don't marinate your prayers to try to make them taste better. Come to God raw. That's what he wants from you, and that's what your soul needs. Now, verse six says this in this psalm. He says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. David says, let everyone pray while he may be found. Translation, pray to him while you have the chance. Because he says that at some point in time, the waters are going to rise. I think we have to agree that this is a picture of the days of Noah, when people were given plenty of chances to repent, but didn't. And then the rain fell, and the waters rose, and it was simply too late. 
My friends, this morning you have an opportunity to make things right with God while you have the chance. And I love what David says in verse seven. He says, you are my hiding place. He says, you are my covering. You are my protection. Guys, when we come to the Lord, it is like Noah's Ark. You can say, it's safe here. I can come to you. When I open up my hands, when I confess my sins, even the ones that are hard to confess, you'll receive me and my sins will be taken away. You guys, the Lord knows everything about you and he loves you right where you're at. Even those dark sins that almost nobody knows about in your life. Because you gotta confess, you gotta admit that for all of us, we've got the sins that are kind of over here, right? These are the sins that I'm well aware of, and even some of my friends are aware of. My accountability partner, my spouse, they might know about these sins in my life that I struggle with, and I'm comfortable confessing these to my friends. I'll even confess these to the Lord very easily. But then there's then there's this. I, I don't open up that side of my jacket for anybody. My spouse doesn't know that part of my jacket. My best friend doesn't know that part of my jacket. I struggle to let the Lord know about what's over there. But what David's talking about is this. It's opening up bare before the Lord, laying all before him. That's healing. That's cleansing. And that's where you find release and freedom. Now in verse eight in this psalm, the the voice changes. It's kind of an interesting twist. It's almost like God himself picks up the pen for a couple verses and then he starts writing. Verse eight says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye on you. Now I love the promise in verse seven, the one just immediately preceding this where God promised to protect us from trouble, but that promise would be incomplete if it were not accompanied by the gift of direction, right? What good would it be, for example, if God guarded us from destruction but he didn't tell us which way to go? And then you've got verse nine. This one's interesting. God says, do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed, and the word is controlled, with bit and bridle, or they will not stay near you. This whole Psalm, all of Psalm 32 is about staying near God. It's about coming to him in prayer and in confession. And in verse nine, we see this really interesting metaphorical language that shows up. And quite frankly, it's a little less than flattering Uh, It's a little painful to read, but I think the analogy that God uses is the right one. Jump on this analogy with me for a second. God is saying, uh, picture for a moment that all of God's people are on a farmyard and we're all God's animals, okay? God cares for all of his animals. He cares for all of us with food and with shelter and with protection. But there is one animal on God's farm that gives him a heck of a time. It's the mule. According to verse nine, The mule is stupid, right? It says in verse nine that the mule is without understanding. And we also see that the mule is stubborn. He needs to be curbed or controlled by the use of a bit and bridle. So how does God uh, take care or deal with this kind of an animal, all right? Well, God wants all of his animals to come into his barn for food and shelter and protection. And he likes to do this by teaching all of his animals their personal name, right? You see in verse eight, it says, I will instruct you. I will teach you in the way you should go. So there's a personal instruction uh, responding to a, a specific and personal call that's described in verse eight. However, the mule will not respond to this direction. Why? Because he's stupid and stubborn. So then how does God 
provide for this particular creature? Well, we learn that he institutes the bit and bridle to, let's just say, strongly encourage obedience. So if we're going down the road of this farming metaphor, jump with me on this for a moment, God gets in his metaphorical pickup truck. He's gonna drive out to the field, spot the mule. He's gonna put the bit and bridle in the mule's mouth, hitch the mule to the truck, and then drag him, probably stiff-legged and snorting the whole way, back to the barn. Now, you need to know that that's not how God wants to interact with his creatures. That's not how he wants his animals to come to him for blessing. But when the needed provision is only available through the farmer, when the farmer is the only source of the mule's blessing, then what choice does he have but to get out the bit and bridle? What's the point of verse nine? The point of verse nine is this, don't be a mule. I was gonna say, don't be a jackass, but I wasn't sure you could say that in church, so don't be a mule. Verse three and verse four of this particular psalm, guys, is David the mule before he learned to pray. Jump back a couple verses with me and check this out. David says, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. Here is David the mule out in the field, stubborn as can be, refusing to acknowledge his sin. He's stiff-legged. He's got his heels dug in. This is the man after God's own heart. I don't know why David's not repenting of his sin at this time in his life. He's obviously walked very closely with God. He's experienced a lot of intimacy with his maker. But here he is not confessing his sin. Now, maybe it's because He's too big for his britches, right? After all, I am the king of Israel. After all, I write the laws in this land. I don't need to confess. I don't need to repent. Maybe he was just a little bit too big for himself and didn't see the gravity of his position. Maybe he, maybe he was just too proud. Or maybe he was just too darn ashamed and embarrassed. Lord, I've had to come to you in the past for forgiveness. I've never had to deal with something this heavy. I've never had to acknowledge this before you before, and I don't even know how. I don't even know if I can. So maybe he was hiding outside the throne room of God because he didn't think that he'd be allowed in. But whether he was too big for his britches or too ashamed to go, either way, his sin remained unconfessed. And you can see from these verses it took a heavy toll on him. Now, when we see in verse four, the pickup truck shows up with bit and bridle. It says, for day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. Guys, when David acted like a mule, God put the bridle of suffering on him and dragged him back to the barn. Now, the way to not be a mule is to humble ourselves. It's to come to God in prayer, to confess our sins and accept the direction of God back into the barn. And verse six is put forth in the psalm as the alternative to mule-like behavior. Pray to him while he may be found. I love verse 10. It says, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. If you're living this morning as I have in the past, where I was living a kind of conflicted life, saved by the Lord in Christ, but not living well, you don't have a sense of love surrounding you. You feel conflict around you but you need to know that there is love surrounding you. 
When you read the parable of the prodigal son, this, this son of a loving father who rebelled against his dad and against his family, took his inheritance and went off and engaged in just debaucherous living, sinful, disobedient living, he got to a point where he realized he had to turn around. It was the only way. And he decides to go back to the barn. And when you get there, when he shows up back to the barn, he doesn't come across dad doing one of these, ready to scold him or pound him. He doesn't even come back to a dad whose arms are open wide, ready for him to come all the way. You see a dad who, as soon as he spots his son, starts running and welcomes his son home, surrounded by loving arms. Some of you have been hiding from the love of the Father because of shame, because of guilt, because you weren't sure if you'd be accepted if you went back because you were scared to deal with this. You don't even want to look at that, but it's there. And you know it's fractured your relationship with your maker. When you go back, loving arms will surround you. Verse 11 says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. I want to talk about this verse for a moment. Before I do, I want to invite the ushers to go ahead and head to the back and grab uh, your trays if you're serving communion this morning. Would you go ahead and start serving? I'm going to be speaking while you're doing that. <sighs> be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, which means sing, all you who are upright in heart. Guys, when I was a young believer and I would read a verse in the Bible that said, O righteous, I knew that that verse was not pointed at me. I was very aware of my shortcomings. I was very aware of my sin. I was very aware of my shame. When the Bible talks about, oh, righteous, I'm like, ah, that, that's, they're, they're talking about someone else. You need to know that if you are in Christ, if you've prayed the sinner's prayer and accepted the Lord as not only your Savior, but your King and your Lord as well, you are righteous. And you're like, Mike, you've just spoken out of both sides of your mouth. We've been talking this morning about how I'm sinful and covered in sin. Yep. But you need to know that when the Lord looks at you, when God looks at you, that's interesting, he sees his son. If you are in Christ, when God looks at you, he sees his perfect son, Jesus. You see, one of the things that's true about all believers, about everyone who is in Christ, is that we have been justified. That's a legal term. This is worth writing down. This is worth committing to memory. You are justified. What does that mean? Justification is when God declares the sinner sinless and treats him as such. God has declared you sinless if you are in Christ. And when he looks at you, he sees his holy and his righteous son. Well, why don't I feel righteous? Why don't I feel clean? Why don't I feel cleansed? Well, because you're in the process of being made holy. Sanctification is the ongoing process by which God, through the Holy Spirit, is making you more like Christ. But this is a long, prolonged process that requires your cooperation. My friends, you are a work in progress. But when God sees you, he sees his son. And when we come to God in prayer, when we come to him in confession, when we open up both sides of our lapel and come clean, cleansing ourselves before God, he will begin to work in you. He will continue to make you more and more like his son. And after communion, we are going to sing about that because that's worth celebrating. Now, I want to share a verse with you this morning. 
I want to share with you a verse that's become, in many ways, my life verse. I connect with this psalm so much because I felt like I struggled very much in this regard. There's been times when I felt like I couldn't come into God's throne room because I wouldn't be welcome. When you're mindful of your sin, there's something in you, as we said earlier, that makes you want to hide. And I remember early on in my um, in my Christian journey, the man who led me to the Lord, I would see him probably once a week for some discipleship and some prayer. And I remember avoiding this guy after a period of time. And he saw me and he said, hey, Mikey, I haven't seen you for a while. How's it going? And like any other phony, I said, yeah, things are great. He's like, where have you been? Oh, I've just been busy. He's like, uh-huh. He's like, let's go get coffee. I'm like, uh-oh. And I confessed to him. I said, uh, I said, Rod, I'm engaging in behaviors that I know are wrong, that I know the Lord hates. I said, I'm covered in sin, and so therefore the Lord hates me. He's like, uh-uh. He said, you've got some bad theology. I said, what do you mean? He said, open up your Bible to Hebrews 4.16. So he took me there, and he walked me through it. I want you to just hear this. I want these words to cover over you this morning. Hebrews 4.16 says, let us therefore approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. One more time. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. My friend said, what are you supposed to do according to this verse? I said, I'm supposed to approach the throne of grace. He said, yep. He said, how are you supposed to do it? Well, I said, it says confidently. I said, but I can't because I'm sinful. He's like, wait a minute, uh-uh. Read the last part of the verse. When are you supposed to do this? I said, well, in my time of need. He said, exactly. He said, is your time of need when you're living well? When you know you're doing all the things you're supposed to? When you're proud of your conduct before the Lord? Or is your time of need when you're mindful that you haven't been doing that? I said, I guess it's when I haven't been. He said, yep. And he said, what does this verse say you will find when you get there? When you come into the throne of grace with confidence, what will you find when you get there? I said, it says I'll receive mercy and find grace to help me. He said, exactly. Some of us in this room this morning need to do some business with God. Some of you have been sweeping some stuff under that rug. Some of you have kept us hermetically sealed and you've never dealt with some stuff that might need to be dealt with this morning for either the first time in a long time, perhaps the first time ever. If that's you, step into the freedom that's yours. Approach the throne of grace with boldness, because you can. Do it this morning while the Lord may be found. Guys, take the bread in your hand, please. Lord, this bread in our hand it's a symbol of your body that was broken for us. Lord, you approached the cross of Calvary and you did so not because you had to. Lord, you did it because you chose to lay down your life and be a sacrifice on our behalf. Your body, Lord, was broken. It was tortured. And you paid a very, very dear price to reconcile me before a holy God. We take this bread this morning, Lord, in recognition of your body broken for us. Would you take the bread?
And Lord, this cup is symbolic of your blood that you spilled on that day. For on Calvary's cross, Lord, you bled. You bled for us. The Bible is clear that salvation is found in the blood. Why? Because life is found in the blood. And you gave yours for us. Lord, you went to the cross to pay a price that we couldn't pay to accomplish that which we couldn't do on our own. And we are eternally grateful. Lord, this blood allows us into the throne room of grace so that we can approach a holy God and be fully restored. Would you take the cup this morning? Selah.